0: Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And this morning I'll read the first 14 verses of this chapter. Here we have the words of the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Let's look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the ministry of the word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have just sung that we are frail children of dust, and that is what we are. And so we come conscious of our weakness, and we think of the Apostle Paul saying in another place that his preaching was not with persuasive words of human wisdom because he felt that he was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling when he was in Corinth. But he said his preaching was nevertheless in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And so we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit upon both preacher and hearer alike, that my preaching might be the preaching of your word And therefore, may it come in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, and may we all hear with ears for eternity, taking heed how we hear, hearing with readiness, eagerness, and humility and faith to take to heart everything we hear, and by the power of your Spirit to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of it for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of our souls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been, uh, for a number of weeks, in Romans chapter 6. I've kind of slowed down my pace. As I've mentioned to my fellow elders, at least, I've been doing it on purpose. I come almost every week with a larger section of the text that I think I'll cover, and then I end up not covering it, but I'm happy with my pace, even at least for this chapter. I don't intend to keep it so slow for the rest of the way through Romans, but that's what we're doing for now. So God willing, today we will uh, focus our attention on the 11th and 12th verses of this chapter. What we've seen so far in Romans 6 is that every Christian has a radically different relationship to God and to sin different from all other people in this world, different from his own relationship to God and to sin when he came into this world. Every true Christian has, according to the language of this text, died to sin, and he has been raised to newness of life. He lives now to God, and that reality is symbolized in baptism, It's symbolized in every true believer's baptism that he has been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And so another thing that this text tells us that is symbolized in our baptism is our union with Christ, our Savior. It symbolizes the fact that what Christ experienced in securing our redemption, death, burial, and resurrection, is also experienced by us in our conversion. Let's just read for the sake of reviewing those things from the text itself, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, Therefore we, that is believers, were buried with him, that's Christ, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." So, Paul is saying that our baptize, baptism symbolizes what happened with Christ when he worked out our redemption. He died on the cross to deliver us from our sins. He was buried. He was in the tomb for three days, but then he rose from the dead on the third day, on the first day of the week. And he says that similarly, because we are in Christ, if we're true believers, we died to sin. We didn't have our physical death yet, obviously. We died to sin. We were buried. That's pictured when we go into the the water of baptism. It symbolizes our being in a spiritual grave because we died to sin. But then we were raised. And as I said, when we went through these verses, it's not pointing forward to the day of resurrection. It's pointing to the fact that you now live as a Christian. Because you died to sin, you now walk in newness of life. That you should no longer, as it says at the end of verse 6, be slaves of sin. That means no longer in this life. It's not pointing forward to our physical resurrection on the last day. It's saying this is what has happened for every true Christian now. So two messages ago, we began looking at verses 8 through 11. We saw at first our confidence, and that's in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, if we did really experience what Paul is writing about here when we came to faith in Christ, if we died with Christ, and every true believer did, here's our confidence. We believe that we shall also live with him, not just that we will be raised on the last day, But as I said, as the text is emphasizing, that we will live with him now. We'll walk in newness of life. We'll be different, as I said, right as I began this morning. And then we considered last time the basis of this confidence, and that was in verses 9 and 10. And what we saw there was that our confidence that we can walk in newness of life as Christians is based on these realities. First of all, that Christ's death was final Verse 9, and then verse 10, uh, the first part of verse 10, he says, We have this confidence, we believe that we shall live with him. Now verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. So Christ's death was final. That's the first part of the basis of our confidence, as Paul states it here. The second part is again in verse 10, the first part of the verse, that Christ's death was a death to sin. Notice verse 10 again, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Again, keep in mind where where Paul is going with all this. Remember, if you're a Christian, you're united to him. You were united to him, we could say, just to use terms that make sense to us, from the moment you were chosen in Christ, before the creation was even begun, and you were united to Christ, therefore, when he died on the cross, you were in him, and you were united to Christ when you were converted. That's when you began to experience union with Christ. And so what Paul is impressing upon you is what happened with Christ happens with you. So if you're a Christian, you now have died to sin, and you walk in newness of life. You've been raised to a new life of godliness, not wickedness anymore. And then the third part of that confidence is this, that Christ, having experienced those things, he now lives to God verse 10, the last part of the verse, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ lives to God. He's not any more subject to any of the, fe- the effects of sin like he was when he walked this earth as a man of sorrows, as a man who endured much pain, injustice, especially culminating in his terrible death on the cross. That's all behind him those things are not behind us now we still contend with sin we still feel the effects of sin but what is behind us is the dominion of sin and that's the way our life now parallels christ's life and death and resurrection no sin presently no effect of sin has any dampening influence on Jesus Christ's life in glory. And one day, that'll be true of you and of me as believers. That day is not yet. But for us now, we can say this, because of our union with him, we walk in newness of life. Just like he lives to God, as I said at the outset, we have a new relationship to God compared to the one we had before we were saved. And likewise, we have a new relationship to sin We're dead to it. Or to give the full picture, as Paul did in Galatians 6.14, we have been crucified to sin, we're dead to it, and it has been crucified to us. It is dead to us, at least in a certain way, a real way, an important way. So that's what we saw the last two messages, and we just began to look at the practical application of this to our lives. And I mentioned that what we've seen in this passage so far really are all facts. They're facts about Christ and what he experienced and facts about us if we have truly been converted, if the Spirit of God really has broken into our lives and brought us to a saving knowledge of Christ. These are facts Paul is recounting here thus far in the chapter about us, about you and about me, if we are true Christians. They are... To use the language I did last time, they are indicatives. They're facts, things that are true, things that have happened. And the indicatives lead to imperatives. Indicative um, is just a, a, a mood, what they call it in grammar, and I don't want to teach a grammar lesson here other than on this point. Um, they, they're kind of like, I said last time this way history books are written in the indicative mood. Here is what happened. At least, ideally, that's the way they're written. Here is what happened. These are the facts of history. Sermons come both in the indicative mood. Here's what Christ did. That's how Paul writes in the first part of the chapter. Here's what, therefore, has happened to you, indicating, if you will, what has happened. But they also include, sermons do, the imperative mood. And the imperative means commands. Here is what you must do. So the imperatives, the commandments of the Bible, are always built on indicatives. Here's what's true. Here's how it affects your life. So we hear some good Bible doctrine, and we rightly can ask the question, so what? What does it matter to me? Or as Reformed Baptists, we say, what's the practical application. What do I need to do with that? What are the action items for me in my life? That's the imperative. That's what we come to now, the practical application in our lives. I just gave one last time. I said it was mine, not Paul's, because there's no imperative. There's no command for this in the Bible, but I thought it was a good practical application, and that's this. I spoke about our confidence in verse 8. We believe, that we shall also live with him. That's an indicative. Paul says that's what's true of Christians. We died with him. We believe we shall live with him. So my imperative there was that we should be confident about our death to sin and our life to God. We should be confident. And we should be characterized as Christians on a regular basis, a day-to-day basis, by this confidence. Confidence that because I'm a Christian, my life will be different from most people in the world. Confidence that as a Christian, I will live a good life. I remember seeing a movie many years ago about a man who survived D-Day, the D-Day invasion on Normandy. And he went back to visit the graveyard there in Normandy in France and he was walking among all of the, um, the grave markers there, the thousands of grave markers of his fellow American soldiers from back in the day. And he went to some of the ones of his own friends that he knew from his platoon and that he stormed the shores with on June 6th. And when he got to one of those, he had a family member with him. And he said, and he wasn't saying it from a Christian perspective. I, I, know, I have no reason to understand that or believe that. But he thought, these men gave the ultimate sacrifice. They were my buddies. I was fighting for them. They didn't make it. And he felt, I, I have an obligation To live a good life. And so he said to his child, I think it was, Have I been a good man? In other words, and that's the way we should look at it as Christians, brethren. If we understand that Christ died, and we are his followers, and we believe we died with him and in him, we have an obligation to live a good life not just in the sense of this world, be nice to people and do good works, etc., but in the highest sense of what that means. So we have confidence, I'm saying, because of what happened in Christ and what I therefore believe if I profess to be a Christian, what happened in me? Because of God's work when he saved me, I have confidence that my life will be different from all the worldlings around me and my life will be good in a biblical sense. I will do good, that my life will be godly. That it will be a life of obedience, a life of holiness, and progress in holiness on a daily basis, and a life that is pleasing to God. Why? Because that's what the Bible says the life of a Christian is. And so he's giving us the grounds for this confidence here in this passage. He's, he's, He's belaboring the point. As I said, the first part of Romans 6 Is very similar to the last part of Romans 5 where Paul states and restates the same things over just with slight changes in the words. Why? To impress a point upon us. And that's what he does again here in Romans 6. So the first practical application in our lives is we should be confident about our death to sin and life to God. Now for today, the second thing, and that's in verse 11, we must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. We must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, excuse me, to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we start out with this word reckon, We have to ask, what is the meaning of this word? It's an English word, but it's a word that we don't really use all that much. Some parts of the country would use it more than we do here in the Northeast. What is the meaning of reckon? What does reckoning mean and what does it involve? Some Greek lexicons give these definitions. It means to have an opinion or to think. Or to believe. So Paul says, as the first imperative here, you need to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the margin of my New King James Version, it gives this synonym consider. For whatever reason, the um, New King James Version decided to stick with that. Older English word that we have in the King James Version. I think it's a good word myself. That's why I'm taking the time to explain what it means. Other English translations, more modern English translation, translations, use the word consider. Some use the word think. Some use the word count. It doesn't mean count like in numbers, but it means, um, well, reckon, Reckon this to have happened. Count on the fact that this is true. Likewise, you also think yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Consider that this is a reality. That's the idea. So I could illustrate it like this. Let's say I'm on the way outside. It's a very rainy day, and it's very rainy right at this moment. And I'm walking out, and I don't have... An umbrella. And so you see me walking outside into the rain, and you know that I have an umbrella available, so you say, it's pouring outside. You might want to get an umbrella. So I look outside. I've just opened the door. I consider what you have said. I consider your testimony about the weather and the fact that it would be wise for me to take an umbrella, and then I conclude, based on those things, that it is, in fact, raining, and I will get wet if I go out without an umbrella, so I should take an umbrella, and then I act on that, and I take the umbrella, and I walk out. Well, the first part of that, up to my action, is reckoning. I'm reckoning with the facts of the situation. I'm reckoning with what you have told me in your testimony and what I see with my eyeballs. And I see that these things are true. That's reckoning. So let's look at the use of this word in a couple other places. One right here in um, Romans 8 and verse 18. Here they did use a different word in the New King James Version, but it's the same word in the original. Paul writes, For I consider, or well, we could say it, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, Paul's saying this. He talks in verse seven about 17, the very previous verse, about suffering with Christ. And he's telling us how he thinks through the whole idea of suffering as a Christian. And he concludes it's not that big a deal. And part of the reason is because I know that though I suffer now, I will receive glory after. So what's his thinking? What's his reckoning? How does he count his situation or the things that he's going to face? He considers... Or reckons that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If I've got something so good coming, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life right now. Doesn't matter how bad it is. Of course, what he's going to go on to, con- to conclude and, and how it's going to affect his life is so I'm not going to complain about it. Not going to dwell on it. It's really. No big deal. Why? Because he went through that process of thinking it through. He reckoned with the facts of the situation. Or look at one other text. Hebrews 11 and verse 19. Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. This is speaking about... <clears throat> Abraham reminds us of some statements we have in Romans 4. Let me just back up to verse 17, get the whole statement. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, and here's the word for reckoning, accounting, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead by which he also received him in a figurative sense. So just like Paul looked at the suffering, he thought through the facts and concluded, it's not really that big a deal. I can do this by God's help and I can do it with a good attitude and even with hope of greater glory to come. So in the same way, Abraham looked at the situation with his son, Isaac, he's his only son, or he's the son anyway that God had made clear was the elect son, that blessing was going to come to all the world through. And now God says, sacrifice that son, slit his throat on the altar and sacrifice him to me. And he considered all the facts of the situation, especially the fact that It's the God of heaven, the omnipotent God, who told him to do that. And he concluded, I can do this. I don't know how God is going to bail me out of it, but God will do it. And he went. He reckoned that that's the way things were, and that's the way things they would end up. All right, so that's what we need to do. We need to reckon, to use the language of Romans 6 then, we need to reckon... That we are dead indeed to sin, it really is true, but we're alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, just reckon to be true, account to be true, consider to be true the things that he has just written. But here he's putting it in an imperative. You need to think this way. What do you need then to reckon? Well, I said it's things we've already seen, but let's just notice the statement in the text. You reckon two basic things, there. Both sides of the same coin. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. You're dead to that old realm of sin and condemnation and death. But you're alive to God. Your new realm is um, righteousness, justification, and life. So you know that that's a fact. Think about it. Live in the light of it. Let that be your guiding truth in life or at least as a christian one of them that's the point he's making here that's the imperative reckon those things to be true and i just want to point out then thirdly the necessity of our reckoning this i don't remember if this is the first imperative in the book of romans maybe it is i can't remember i read or heard it mentioned not that long ago um, what was the first imperative in the book of Romans, maybe this is it. My point simply in this, brethren, after all that he stated, my point is this, in Romans 6 about these realities, when Paul comes to finally give a command to Christians and the command is just reckon this to be true, he's not just wasting ink here. He's making a very important point for the Christian life. And that's why I want to just spend a moment on this point of the necessity of our reckoning this to be true. We know that when God saves us, he makes all these things that we read in Romans 6, he makes them to be true. He states in the Bible they're true and then he himself actually makes them true. And we know that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord from the beginning to the end. It begins with God electing us, his people in Christ, before the foundation of the world, in love, purely by his grace, not because of anything good in us. It, it, it happens when God saves us and opens our eyes to the gospel and the truth of it through the work of the Holy Spirit. All of that happens there's the necessity of, of uh, there, there is salvation by grace alone. it's entirely the work of God. And then at every single point, in our Christian lives, it's all about God. It's not salvation is not God's work, plus your work, and that, added up, results in salvation. That's a Roman Catholic view of salvation, that if they include God at all in it, in the the equation, is the basic view of almost every religion in the world. It's not all of God and by grace. It's what I do. That's what it's all about. And the Bible's doctrine of salvation is absolutely not that. It's, It's all the work of God. So why... Why do we worry about what we do? Why should we? Why, why should we make a big deal out of reckoning? And even more than that, because we're going to come to more than that when we come to verse 12. Here's the reason. It's because God, in the work of salvation, once he saves us, and between then and the day of Christ's coming when he raises us, he doesn't bypass our minds He doesn't bypass our wills. He doesn't bypass our efforts. And you all know that, but let me just mention a few texts in the Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 10. It tells us that after it says that we're saved by grace through faith, it's not of us. It's by the grace of God. Well, okay, I hear fade pages, so let's let's read um, Ephesians 2. Verses hmm, 8 to 10. Maybe Pastor Khan will get his wish here that uh, we get part two tonight. But it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right, so we can understand that. We've been saved by grace through faith. God elected us in Christ way before the foundation of the world. What did I have to do with that? Nothing. And then God brought me to faith. He saved me through faith. And that is not of myself. In other words, that's not my part that I add to Christ's work. And together, his work and mine makes a whole, which equals salvation. No, it is not of me. I've been saved by faith, but the whole of my salvation is not of myself. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing in my salvation that I can boast about. So that's true from my election before the foundation of the world, and that's true up to and including my conversion when I came to faith in Christ. What about after that? Well, it tells us in verse 10 about after that. For we are his workmanship, God's. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, you as a Christian, one of God's purposes for you is that you are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's the walking in newness of life in Romans 6. It's a life of good works. Whose are they ultimately? They're God's prepared by God, worked in us by God. Yeah, yeah, well, well, but it's I who work out my salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, yep. Knowing that it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So when you do a good work, where does the idea come from? From God. He works in you to will that good work, to even want to do it. Natively, you wouldn't. Apart from the work of Christ and Christ dwelling in you, you wouldn't want to do it. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit prompting you to do it, making you think about it, you wouldn't want to do it. And apart from the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in you, you would not have the strength or the ability to do it. So that, as it says earlier in Philippians, in chapter 1 and verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So salvation is not like a wind-up toy. That you were dead in your sins, but God picked you up. Like he uh, picked up the, the baby lying in the mud and in the afterbirth in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's not like that, and then he, like a wind-up toy, you know, put the Spirit in you, wound you up, and now after this, you just run on your own. No, you are completely, entirely dependent on God for the rest of your days. God doesn't bypass our minds, our wills, and our efforts, even though he does all the work, but he works in you to do everything you do. Same truth that we have in... John 15, verses 4 and 5, You must abide in him, and he abide in you, for apart from him you can do nothing. Oh, oh, but I'm a Christian now, I can. Not apart from the indwelling power of Jesus Christ, and you're constantly and consciously abiding in him, looking to him, trusting in Him, depending upon Him. That's the Christian life. That is salvation by grace. Salvation from beginning to end by grace. But, and this is the point I'm making, God doesn't suspend the necessity of your exerting yourself. You're working. You're thinking it through It starts with your reckoning. He doesn't bypass your mind. He doesn't bypass your will. And it's just kind of like you wake up in the morning, say, wonder what God's gonna do today. I I know there's this really strong temptation that I face in my life. And I'm really excited about seeing how God is gonna get me through it because I I know I can't get through it in my own strength, but I'm just gonna kind of float through the day and see how God comes and just picks me up like a big wave. That's not how God works. That's how some people think the Christian life is to be lived. And they don't do all that well. And the way that they get through it is they just think that doesn't really matter because whatever God does is what He does, and it's all on Him. Well, it is all on Him. But the way He does it is that you... Feel the pressure yourself and you think through it and you determine that you're going to do it and then you go and make the effort and you do it. We could illustrate it like this. One commentator used the illustration here of Christians being freed from sin, according to Paul's statement in Romans chapter 6. He uses the analogy of slavery because it's a very good analogy. That's what Paul uses himself. He talks about uh, being under dominion to sin. He talks about being freed, having formerly been, verse 6, slaves of sin, but no longer slaves of sin. So this commentator referred to the slavery that existed for, in this country up to the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, and that was in eighteen sixty two and some of you might say, "Well, you know it's, it's slavery even still did exist in the very same form after that, and that's the idea he brought out. So imagine here is a slave uh, a, uh, a, um, a plantation in the south, one of the countries one of the states uh, where the Emancipation Proclamation had to do with there the, the statement was made, all slaves in whatever number of states there were up to that time are now officially, legally free. Free from their masters, free from being owned by someone else, free from having to serve them and work for them, etc. So here you have a slave on this plantation in the south. Let's say one day that that was announced. Maybe somebody uh, from the government came by and, and made this... Announcement, read a proclamation, etc. Announce it to all the slaves on the same plantation. So that's pretty good news. He wakes up the next day. He's still on the plantation. He slept in the same place. He went out. His master or whoever the supervisor was that he usually worked under said to him, um, I still want you to go to work today. You need to do it. Looks around, he sees other slaves are doing it. And so he says, They say we're free, but I reckon it's not really so. I reckon I'm still in bondage. And so he acts like it, he goes nowhere. He does whatever his boss told him to do that day. He does nothing different. Now, things were, in fact, different. What did he need to do? He needed to reckon differently than he was reckoning. And this is how we should look at a passage like Romans 6. No matter how terrible your struggle with sin has been on a day-to-day basis, even since you have become a Christian, no matter how difficult it has been, you need to reckon differently. Romans 6 tells you how you should think as a Christian every day, all the time. And that's how you need to look at life. You say, well, this is true about me if I'm a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian It may not, this passage may not fit exactly with my experience, but I should look at this as the truth, and then I should live in the light of this truth. I should get to the point where I start acting on this truth in ways that I have not been. Because that is what a true Christian does. He's been freed from the dominion of sin, so he walks in newness of life. Things are different now. So it's telling me, Paul's telling me, I need to get up every day and remember why that's true. It's true because of what Christ experienced when he died on the cross, was put in a tomb, and then was raised to newness of life. So I should think because Christ experienced that my life should be different. And then I should reason this way. My life should be different, different it should be characterized by newness of life, not just by living the same way I was before I was a Christian because of what I have experienced in him. In my conversion, If I was really saved, if I was really converted, I have died to sin. It's no longer my master. I have risen to newness of life in Christ. I live to God now. And I should be thinking this way. Things have to be different because this is my new reality. That's the way it is. That's reckoning. That's reckoning yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I need, this is what Paul's saying, you need, if you're a Christian, I need to reckon this to be so. Even if everything around you, let's say on the plantation, is telling you otherwise, you've heard the truth, you know the truth, reckon that to be so, act on it. Walk to the edge of the slave owner's property and take another step that you never dared take before. Reckon that you are free. That's what Paul is saying. No matter what opposition or difficulties to obedience you face, No matter what weaknesses or sins you still see residing in your heart, reckon these truths to be so. And if you're someone who constantly struggles with assurance, it's not just for you, it's for everybody, but especially you, listen. It's not that it's not difficult to reckon bible truth when there's so many things around you in your life that are saying otherwise at times there is opposition there is your native weakness there are obstacles that you face but here's what the christian does he believes what god has said in his word he reckons it to be true and he then walks in newness of life. That's what he does. He realizes and he reminds himself that God has brought about a change in his life. He says to himself, sin is not my element anymore. It was. The Bible's very clear about that. But it's not anymore. I have a new element. It's righteousness and justification and life in Jesus Christ. And I need to walk that way. And he says, yeah, I I still have that which in me which likes sin. I admit it. But it's no longer my preference. I don't want that old life. He realizes that. He remembers that. He reminds himself. It's not my desire. Not ultimately. It's not my plan on any given day. I don't plan to live like I used to live. I don't plan to fall like I've sometimes fallen in my Christian life. That's not me anymore because of God's grace. That is not what I am determined to do and the way I'm determined to live. He reminds himself of those things, that that's the way it ought to be. And he reminds himself, that is not my habit anymore. I used to eat drink and sleep sin I was oblivious to it I was oblivious to the misery it put me in I liked it that was me it's not me anymore it's not my habit have I fallen in some of those ways still yes do I battle it every day yes but is that what who I am anymore if I ask somebody who looks up my life and gives an honest, biblical judgment about me? Would he say you're still what you were so many years ago, especially if he knew you? If he says yes, then maybe you should say, well, then maybe I'm not what I think I am. But my point is you should reckon that you are what you claim to be, and you live in the light of that. Think of John, First uh, John 3. Let's just look there because we can, because I'm not going to go any farther than this point first john 3 verse 6 and then verse 9 because these are the kind of questions that come up when you um, get on to this subject a text like this john says whoever abides in him that is in christ in other words he believes in jesus And he's continuing to walk in newness of life. We could put it that way, using Romans 6 language. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So what's the strong temptation to think that that text is teaching? That if you are a true Christian, you don't sin anymore. Strong temptation to think that when you read this text. But you've read enough other texts to know that that's not true, is it? and you've seen your own life and the life of every other Christian you know, including Paul, when we get to Romans 7, that that's not reality. That every true Christian does not sin at all. So that can't be the meaning. But in some way, it's it's true. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Strong words. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God, he's born again, does not sin, Paul says. For God's seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he, has not, because he has been born of God. And I know some people say, well, it means you don't continue to sin. I don't think that's the answer to this text, because, let me ask every true Christian here, don't raise your hand, but I'll raise mine. Do you still sin? Do you continue to sin, even though you're a Christian? Yeah, I do. So it's not that simple. But... If we think of Romans 6, this is how we understand it. You've died to sin if you're a true Christian. And in this sense, you don't sin anymore. It's not focusing on any instant in time, any moment in your life as a Christian. Aha! You still sin. That's not it. It's focusing on your life. It's focusing on your habit or to use a theological term, the habitus of the will, the way that you are set now as a Christian. It's focusing on your attitude as a Christian. You are aiming not to sin. It's focusing on your determination as a Christian as to how your life is going to be and what you are going to do in your life on a day-to-day, on a yearly basis. You are, I have decided to follow Jesus And for my money, there is no turning back. That's what Paul is describing in Romans 6. That's what John is describing in 1 John 3. That person. A simple person looks at it. He says, ha, you call yourself a Christian. You sinned at work today. You're not a Christian. And he says, there is no difference between a Christian and an unbeliever. That's what the simpleton thinks. The truth is this. There is a world of difference between a Christian and an unbeliever. Let me illustrate it this way. I'll illustrate it with lawn mowing because I spend a lot of time lawn mowing. I go out the first day of the spring that the grass is long enough and growing enough, and I have enough time to get out there and do the first mowing. My neighbor, whose lawn is also growing, but really doesn't like to mow the lawn and doesn't like to work, quite frankly, he goes out on the same day with a book and with a chaise lounge, and he sits on his patio all day. Turns out, I didn't tune up my mower. I didn't run it since the last fall. I didn't have gas in my mower. I need to go get that. Something else happens. Somebody calls me from church with an emergency. I spend time doing other work on that day. I don't get my lawn mowed. My neighbor looks at me. He says, there's no difference between you and me. You said you were going to mow your lawn. You didn't do it. I didn't ever even say I would mow my lawn. I didn't do it. You're the same as I am. Fact of the matter is, I spent the evening going out to the gas station and getting gas in my thing. I did what I did to my mower. Got a new spark plug from Home Depot, etc. The next day it rained. My neighbor can say the same thing again. But the end of the week comes. He's finishing his book. I have finished my lawn. There's a huge difference between the two of us. Even in those days when I didn't do what my goal was exactly, I thought about it. I planned on it. I took the necessary steps. And then when the time came... I went and I did it. And when the end of the week came, my lawn was mowed and his was not. There's a huge difference. And especially at the end of the summer, there is a really big difference between me and my neighbor and our respective lawns. You get the idea. Brethren, reckoning means you read Romans 6 and you make this your new reality and you fight against everything that tries to get in your way and prevent it from living like that. You believe what Paul says in the word of God, what God says in the word of God. You remember it, you bear it in your mind, and then you hold yourself accountable to it. And then you live it out in your life. And that's what will bring us to verse 12. And God willing, that'll be tonight with the uh, agreement of my fellow elders. So I'm going to stop there. I will just close with one word. If you are not a believer, you are still in the world. You love the world. You love sin. Maybe God has enlightened you to the point and given you some conviction to the point that you're starting to realize life in sin is not really that great a life. Maybe that's why you're sitting in these pews this morning. And if you are and you've been here before, you've heard this before, but the answer to breaking out of bondage to sin and becoming a slave to God, who is a wonderful, loving master, even when he tells you to do things. The way to break that bondage to sin and become the child of the living God and the servant of Jesus Christ, the Savior, is to simply believe in him Believe that his death and that alone can save you from your sins and then turn to him in repentance and faith in him. And that's what I urge you to do today. Before this day closes, do that. As we're reminded this morning, none of us has any guarantee he will wake up to tomorrow. May God bless us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take these things we've heard today and write them upon our hearts. Father, we can see what the scripture clearly teaches about Christ, salvation in him, and the Christian life. Help us who have professed to be believers in Christ to reckon those things to be so, and to live in the light of them more and more, that our lives might show forth your glories more and more as we walk in newness of life on a daily basis and bring those who are still dead in their sins and trespasses to new life in Christ today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.